Welcome to Sundays with Montrose Bible Church. We're glad you tuned in as Pastor Matt leads us in a study of God's Word. This morning we continue our sermon series from the book of Matthew as Jesus instructs the apostles about the inner workings of God's kingdom. Already we have heard him teach in Caesarea Philippi, on top of Mount Hermon, and all throughout the region of Galilee, making his final appearance in each of these places while setting his face like flint toward Jerusalem. That's what awaits in just two chapters. The triumphal entry of Jesus and his disciples into the capital city in anticipation of the Passover and the passion of Christ. Now, given the immediacy of the Lord's timeline, then, we can appreciate the importance of teaching these 12 leaders now about his death and resurrection about the dangers of sin, how to welcome others into the kingdom, and the sobering realities of hell. And while each of those issues is steeped in theological significance, they include important practical considerations as well, like how to trust Jesus when you don't see Jesus. How to keep yourself pure from the world's temptations. How to reconcile and restore a believer who has gone astray. In these precious moments of solitude, Jesus relayed all of these things and more to these future curators of the Christian faith. But as they move on from Galilee to the west side of the Jordan River, to Perea on the east, the crowds and the conflicts return. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 19. And follow along as we read God's word together, beginning in verse 1. Matthew chapter 19, verse 1. When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. 
And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. May God bless the reading of his word. Now, as we are first introduced to this particular text, we find Jesus surrounded once again by the mixed multitude who had gathered to see this miracle-working prophet from Nazareth one more time. And though he did perform various healings for their sick, the emphasis here is on Christ's teaching in order that the crowds might gain a new appreciation for the kingdom of God. And yet, after a short time, that interaction was interrupted by some Jewish Pharisees who posed a very pointed question about marriage and divorce. Now, surely, if it was curiosity that drove them to the feet of Jesus, well, that we could understand. But they did not come to seek his guidance. They did not come to seek God's direction. They did not come in search of biblical truth. No, they had a much more disturbing agenda. As our gospel writers assure us, these religious leaders came to test Jesus using this issue as their platform. The word test there comes from the Greek peirazo, meaning to confront, trap, entice, or tempt. As we would read this in more amplified translations, the Pharisees came in order to test him and try to find a weakness in his response. They came to snare him, intending to discredit his teaching. They came to trip him up in front of all the crowd. Well, call it what you will. Matthew is very clear that in their line of questioning, their intent was nothing but evil. See, the Pharisees believed that no matter what Jesus said in regard to divorce, that a significant group of people would be upset with him. Say, yes, divorce is acceptable in certain instances. And, well, he's a liberal who cares nothing about the truth. Say, no, divorce of any kind is wrong. He would be siding against the populace, including one Herod Antipas, who just had John beheaded for saying that very same thing. It's a lose, lose, lose proposition for Jesus. And it has that same sense of danger for us today. When dealing with a subject as sensitive as this one, 
I understand that no matter what I say, someone will be unhappy. Someone will be offended. Someone will feel attacked or condemned. Knowing that, we have but three choices. We can avoid talking about these things by skipping the portions of Scripture that address them. We can read the text but explain the difficult things away to make them more palatable. Or we can say the things that God himself has said and deal with the realities of our sin. We will, of course, choose door number three. Because we can never favor our opinions, our feelings, or our sympathies over the clear and revealed truth of God's word. No matter how hard that truth may be for us to swallow. God has revealed something here about marriage, divorce, remarriage, and the blessings of his covenant. And we must come to terms with them. Seeking not to justify ourselves in the eyes of man as we do so. But humble ourselves in the eyes of God. In that spirit then. First and foremost. We realize that God designed marriage to be exclusive and permanent. Take a look back. At verse 3. While still very much in the midst of this crowd, some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, before we look at the particulars of Jesus' response... We must first acknowledge the difficulty of this question. In setting this trap for Jesus, the Pharisees want him to address a multifaceted issue with a simple yes or no. When they ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce a wife for any reason? Are they asking if it is legally permitted by the laws of Jewish society or are they asking if this kind of thing is acceptable before God? That's an important distinction. Because, as is the case today, what's legal and what's godly are often two very different things. In our society, divorce is perfectly legal even if no one is deemed to be at fault. And more than being legal, it's often encouraged. If a husband and wife are no longer getting along, if they've fallen out of love with one another, if it would help them to feel better about life. 
And while divorce was much less frequent within the nation of Israel, it turns out they were continually confronted with this issue as well. Despite their comparatively high view of marriage, just about every school of Jewish thought recognized and allowed divorce to a certain degree. With the exception of a few Qumran converts who considered divorce of any kind immoral, everyone else made some measure of provision for it. Those following the teachings of Shammai permitted divorce where there was a gross indecency like adultery. Those in the camp of Hillel gave men permission to put away their wives for just about any offense, real or imagined, including the addition of a few pounds, a poorly cooked meal, or because the husband had found someone a bit prettier. That was certainly the more liberal view, but it also had become the most popular, even in Pharisaic circles, where the frequency of divorce was an open scandal. See, that's where the people were coming from, by and large. So what about Jesus? Is he a Qumranian? A Shamite? Is he from the school of Hillel? Wherever he falls, he's going to offend a significant number of his followers. However he answers, it's going to divide his base of support. And that's just what the Pharisees were hoping. So, Jesus, enlighten us, if you would, with your view of divorce. Well, never one to turn down a teachable moment, the Lord gave his response. Aimed not so much at their current practice of divorce, but the original design of marriage. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Is that for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? I mean, the Pharisees wanted Jesus to offer an opinion, you see, so they could scoff and scold. Jesus quotes them the word of God with two citations from the book of Genesis. Because Jesus knows that in order to have any intelligible conversation about this subject at all, you've got to go back to the beginning. Before everything was corrupted by sin. Before depravity spat upon the altar. Before human desire was elevated above God's design. To Jesus, this isn't about what may or may not be legally allowed in a particular culture. It's not about how bad things have gotten in our modern day. It's not about finding loopholes or justifying compromise. This is about God's intent for the marriage relationship and how people ought to join together for good. 
Let me turn back for a moment to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. As we see what Jesus was teaching about men and women. On day 6 of creation, Lord God said, It is not good for the man I just created to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Long before men started walking away from their covenantal commitments, long before Israel started playing the harlot with other gods, long before Moses made his concession about divorce, he wrote about the origin of marriage here. And so it is fair to say, based on Jesus' use of this text throughout the New Testament, and its having been given before the corruption of sin, that this is the foundational command for marriage that was recorded by Moses in the Pentateuch. And this is the command that should govern the lives of those who stand free from the bondage of sin in Christ. That one man and one woman would be joined together in a covenant relationship that would end only in death. I mean, those are the vows that most all of us choose for our day of matrimony, are they not? I take you to be my lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold from this time forth and forever, for better or worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death, do us part? I mean, how many of you recited those very words? How many? Followed by the quoting of verse 6 from the mouth of the officiate, no doubt, who declared, they are no longer two now, but one flesh. And what God has put together, let no man separate. The covenantal commitment we speak about on our wedding day is not contingent on our spouse's performance. It doesn't come with a whole bunch of fine print. If we're going to treat it that way, then we ought to say so. When we're standing at the altar before our family and friends, I, Matt, take thee, Reagan, to be my lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold for as long as I deem appropriate. As long as you still keep your looks. As long as you're still gainfully employed. As long as you don't get too sick 
or ask too much of me on weekends. I promise to be with you as long as you continue to like the things that I like. As long as you give me the right number of kids. As long as you're successful, gain no more than 20 pounds, and never require me to visit the in-laws. As absurd as that would sound at a wedding, that would be a whole lot more honest. Given the way people up and leave their marriage when being married no longer suits their fancy. Folks, God has designed this thing to mean a whole lot more than that. Two shall become one flesh joined together in the Lord. Jesus makes that original intention perfectly clear in this conversation. That God made them male and female. That God made them one flesh. And that what God has put together, no man has the right to separate. And one of the reasons that this is so important to the Lord is because marriage is representative of a far more important relationship than just that of husband and wife. Ultimately, it reflects the spiritual union between Christ and his church. This covenantal bond that commits the bridegroom, Jesus, to the bride he has just redeemed. As Paul considers the same text from Genesis chapter 2 in his writings, he assures us it's not just about whether two people can get along all right under the same roof. It's a testimony to the very faithfulness of Almighty God. This mystery is great, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. But when I picture two things uniting as one flesh, I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Yeah? I mean, there is no doubt God designed marriage to be exclusive and permanent. And then, as we're told in verses 7 and 8, Moses permitted divorce, but only because of sin. Pharisees said to Jesus, if marriage is meant to be binding forever, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. Now, even today, all biblical teaching that you find about divorce goes back to the first four verses of Deuteronomy chapter 24. That's what the Pharisees quoted. It's where the first century Jews found support. And it's how people justify divorce in the church today. But of course, by that point in time, the sanctity of marriage had already gone completely 
off the rails. And every bit of it had been tainted by sin. Still, this is the text just the same. Where Moses tells the nation of Israel that when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, and if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away the first time, is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Well, upon closer inspection, you find this isn't really a teaching about divorce at all. It's about a very peculiar kind of remarriage. But that fact notwithstanding, the majority of Jewish men took Moses' statement here as support for the practice, taking great license in this matter of divorce. In fact, well into the first and second centuries, a man was able to send his wife away for virtually any reason at all. Based on their very loose interpretation of that phrase, erwat debar, some indecency. Many, especially in the Hillelite camp, took that to mean not just sexual immoralities like adultery, but pretty much anything that the husband didn't like. And they had become quite flippant about the matter. Citing Moses' words as a reasonable defense for their actions. Such that, as soon as the wife fell out of favor with her husband, here's your certificate of divorce. Even the celebrated Jewish historian Josephus fell prey himself, writing with coolness and indifference that it was, about this time I put away my wife, who had borne me three children, because... She no longer pleased me with her manners. Divorce was practiced carelessly and with great excess. And people found justification for their behavior by quoting this passage from the Pentateuch. And yet when confronted by the Pharisees on this occasion, Jesus clarifies that teaching and helps us see that the permission given by Moses was never meant to excuse divorce, but only to regulate it. So it wouldn't cause even more harm in the assembly. Jesus said to them, it is only because of your hardness of heart that Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, It has not been this way. Now, it turns out this isn't a command as the Pharisees attempted to frame it. It's a concession. 
given to a corrupt, wicked, depraved, and unregenerate peoples. Saying essentially this, that since you are so very hell-bent on divorcing your wives, at least don't pass them around one to another and bring even more sin and shame into this land. I mean, restrain yourself at least that much, we pray. I mean, that's why the teachings of Genesis are so instructive on this and why Christ referred to them first. Because by the time Moses is addressing this issue in Deuteronomy, we're no longer working with pure doctrinal teaching. We no longer have God's ideal. We have a compromised ethic given to a sin-sick people that for some inexplicable reason has become the new standard for those in the modern church. Yeah, I know God isn't crazy about divorce, but in my case, because this and this and this have happened, the Bible's okay with it. No. The Bible is not okay with it. The Bible has never been okay with it. And neither is the living God. He hates divorce. As we are told very clearly in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. He hates it. Not only because it provides a poor testimony to the onlooker, which it does. Not only because it gives the wrong picture of Christ and in church, which it does. But also because in divorce, men and women are working directly against God. Undoing the very thing that he has done. They're no longer two, but one flesh by an act of God's will. What therefore God has joined together, man ought never to separate. That would be rebellion of the highest order, making all divorce sin. And like the Pharisees before us, we need to understand that Moses' concession in Deuteronomy 24 was by no means meant to be prescriptive. As though future generations should try to emulate and follow after this great example. No. This is not prescriptive. It's descriptive of the regrettable circumstances of his time. And the compromise that was made to keep peace among the people. This cannot be our aim, friends. This cannot be our solution. No, as Adam Clark put it, a real Christian ought rather to beg of God 
the grace to bear patiently and quietly with the imperfections of their spouse than to think of them as a means for separation. Divorce was allowed by Moses, you say. Yes, to a people whose hearts were already hard. But it would be folly to think that what was permitted among the worst of the Jews should serve now as a rule to those who love God and have been renewed by the Holy Spirit. Not a chance. That's why Jesus says, if you were not so wrapped up in sin, so blinded by your own desires, so hardened to the truth, Moses would never have spoken those words to you. Because the word divorce wouldn't even be in your vocabulary. Do you see? God designed marriage to be exclusive and permanent. Moses permitted divorce only because of sin. And as we see in verse 9, Christ considers remarriage an act of adultery. Jesus goes on to say to them, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Adultery, as you know, occurs when someone has relations with another outside the covenant of marriage. Well, because God does not recognize divorce, it is adulterous to be with another man or woman, even if you are legally separated from your spouse. I mean, this is another point of contention, I realize, but it is what the Lord God has said. If you get divorced, you have presumably filed the necessary paperwork, hired the lawyers, you signed on the dotted lines, and once all of that goes through, you are no longer married in the eyes of Susquehanna County, the state of Pennsylvania, or the U.S. of A. But you may still be married in the eyes of God with only two possible exceptions. One is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul talks about an unbelieving spouse who deserts a believer and refuses to be reconciled. Of course, that would mean the two marrieds are unequally yoked, which is likely sinful anyway, but that's beyond our scope this morning. So we'll focus more intently on the other possibility mentioned here in a subordinate phrase where Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, this three-word interjection has caused great debate over the years as to its exact meaning. In its simplest and most straightforward interpretation, taking those words just on face value, we might conclude that where immorality has occurred in one's marriage, divorce is a viable and Christ-accepted resolution. We may even be persuaded to think that in such a case, remarriage could be allowed. 
many take this phrase that way. And it is possible that that's what Jesus was saying to the Pharisees. But there are a number of issues that would have to be sorted before we could apply that so-called exception clause with any confidence. For one, well, it would seem to go against Christ's statement in verse 6 about man not separating what God put together. Now, is Jesus saying you can undo what God has done just so long as certain prerequisites have been met? I think it's a little difficult to accord those two statements. And not only that. If we were to take this statement that way, it would put Matthew in direct conflict with both Mark and Luke, who record this same teaching of Jesus, but without the presumed exception. According to Mark chapter 10, verses 11 to 12, Jesus said to them at this point in the conversation, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Period. Without any exceptions, clauses, or additional phrasing. Luke records it that same way. With Jesus saying in chapter 16 of his gospel, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Everyone. And... He who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. I mean, these are some of the difficulties with Matthew's inclusion. And there are many more. I mean, take the issue of the immorality itself. That word comes from the Greek pornea, which is not necessarily limited to adultery, but includes a whole assortment of sexual immoralities like Premarital fornication, marital unfaithfulness, incest, prostitution, involvement with pornography, and the like. But if pornea refers to every sexual sin that could be committed, then Jesus is saying nothing more than what the rabbis taught in first century Judaism. And that wouldn't explain the apostles' shocked and dismayed reaction that they would, after hearing Jesus take on divorce, all of a sudden want to abandon marriage wholesale. We also have to contend with the fact that in the Hebrew construct, adultery already had a punishment associated with it. And it wasn't just being put away by one spouse. No, adultery was supposed to be punished by death. That's the express command according to Leviticus chapter 20 and other texts where the nation of Israel was told that if there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife or one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Does Jesus' teaching now speak against that practice? I'm not sure. <laughs> Because if marriage really is a picture of God and his people, if it really is given to us 
as a picture of Christ and his church. Think about what it means to have an exception clause. That says that God and his son Christ Jesus could write us a certificate of divorce and send us away whenever we go wandering into unfaithfulness. Is that really what he's teaching? Immediately after calling us to a 70 times 7 kind of forgiveness. Immediately after telling us about God, the good shepherd, who comes after us when we go wayward. There are a lot of questions that have to be answered before we can just adopt this exception as such. Especially when you consider that in many early manuscripts. Matthew 19 verse 9 is more than twice this long with an entire section that went missing, which says, he who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. It's just too difficult to parse out. Personally, I believe the thrust of the verse to be something like this. Whoever divorces his wife, if he has not already been an adulterer, surely becomes an adulterer when he marries another woman. That translation addresses every one of the textual issues and communicates with precision the view of God. Yeah, I know we love loopholes, right? And up to 50% of churchgoers today have found solace in this one right here. But the truth is, it may not even be an exception. Not for divorce and certainly not for remarriage. Nowhere does the Bible give permission for remarriage of any kind on any basis other than, of course, for the widow or the widower. And why is there to be no remarriage? Because in God's eyes, as he does the accounting, from his perspective, there is to be no divorce. And since there is no divorce, remarriage after it is no different than adultery where people who are still married are out running around on their spouse. That's the simple truth being conveyed here. Right out of the mouth of Jesus. The marriage is an all-binding, all-sacrificing, all-surrendering kind of deal. Never to be broken never to be walked away from, never to be trampled upon or traded in for by the likes of men. God designed marriage to be exclusive and permanent. Moses permitted divorce, but only because of sin. 
Christ considers remarriage then an act of adultery. That's what we learn from Jesus' response to the Pharisees. But as they leave, he adds one more piece to it. By telling the disciples that some choose singleness to better serve the Lord. Take a look now at verse 10. Sobered by the extra strictness with which Jesus spoke, the disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, long-suffering, forever binding, with no escape when I change my mind, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry in the first place. That was their conclusion because of Christ's radical teaching on this subject. But Jesus said to them in verse 11, Not all men can accept this statement that you have just said, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Now because there is no way out once gotten into the idea of marriage became a whole lot less attractive to the disciples than it was just a few moments earlier. You mean to tell me that marriage is final? That it is forever? With no way out if it doesn't work? You mean to tell me I can't turn the old wife in for a new one when times get difficult? You mean to tell me I have this one shot and no other for the rest of my life? I don't know if this marriage thing is worth it, Lord. Not with all of that. Well, Look, friends, marriage is hard. The idea that two selfish, sinful human beings could unite together in one accord and have that go perfectly all of the time, even with the Lord in the midst of it, marriage is still really hard. And yet, even in the struggles and the hardships and the difficulties, For those who are called to marriage, it is totally and completely worth it. For we get to experience what God set forth as the epitome of joy-filled, fulfilling human relationship. Even when times get tough, we agree with Solomon who said in the book of Proverbs that he who finds a wife finds a good thing. And obtains favor from the Lord. That house and wealth are an inheritance from fathers. But a prudent wife is from the Lord. So let your fountain be blessed. And rejoice in the wife of your youth.
the disciples were wrong to dismiss marriage wholesale. Because for those who are called to it, it is totally and completely worth it. A blessing and a privilege beyond just about any other we will experience on this earth. They were wrong about that part of their statement. But in a roundabout sort of way, they were right about the blessing that can be found in singleness. And that's what Jesus picks up on in his response. You say, it's better not to marry? Well, yeah, that may be true for some. I mean, not all can live that way, certainly. But for those who can, there is a lot that can be accomplished for the Lord. A lot that can be accomplished without having to head up a household. A lot that can be accomplished without having to provide for children. A lot that can be accomplished without the time constraints that family life brings. You have more time and opportunity to spend in service to the living God. That's just the reality of it. But in order to be successful, you've got to be called to a life of celibate singleness. As Jesus says, this is only for those to whom it has been given. Because just as marriage is wrought with its challenges, so too is living a long-term single life. You may battle loneliness or discontentment. You may struggle with too much idle time on your hands. You may face unrelenting temptation. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I, single like Paul. It's good if they can remain single. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. There's no doubt singles can accomplish a great deal for Christ, but only for those to whom it has been given. Like eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. Eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men and those who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus speaks about eunuchs here, he's referring to men who do not possess what is necessary for reproduction. Those who are born with that condition have no opportunity to marry and procreate. And thus they should dedicate their lives to serving the Lord. The same is true for those who are emasculated sometime later in their life. They too must forgo marriage and should find ways to minister with their singleness. And then there is this third category of eunuch that Christ describes. Those who made themselves eunuchs. Not by physical amputation, but in the spirit. 
choosing to remain celibate for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Serving the Lord more faithfully, more completely, more undistractedly than they otherwise might. Jesus is the perfect model of that, I would say. And along with him, Paul. God needed them to be single-minded. So he made them single. And he might you, if you can accept it, for the good thing that it is. Yes? The Pharisees came to test Jesus, to trap him. And cause him to lose all the followers that he had gained. And I'm sure there were some in the crowd. Just like there are perhaps some in this room. Who will leave in disgust. But what answer really did Christ offer? It wasn't an opinion to be argued. It wasn't a preference that they could refute. He answered by reciting the word of God. And so too must we. Knowing based on the authority of scripture. That God designed marriage to be exclusive and permanent. The Moses permitted divorce only because of sin. The Christ considers remarriage an act of adultery. And that some will choose singleness to better serve the Lord. This is the word of God. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it as such. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come and gather. For the Blessing it is to open your word and receive truth directly from you. And we pray that's happened here this morning. That we have been able to put aside our preferences, our cultural leanings, our desensitized emotions, and get to your heart and what you want as you have designed it. Lord, if our marriages are supposed to reflect your faithfulness, then how do we walk away? Who are we to separate something that you have joined together? We have no right, no ability, and no standing to do that, Lord. So we thank you for the blessing of marriage. We thank you for the faithful commitment that it involves and for the grace that you give us to see it through to the end, to your end, Lord, whenever you return or take us home. That we would be faithful in that, Lord. And if not, that we would choose singleness and serve you all the more with the time that that affords us. Either way, Lord, that you would receive all the honor and glory from doing it your way for your glory. Thank you again for this time. Continue 
to be exalted in our midst, we pray. Amen and amen. We trust you were challenged by the word of the Lord and invite you to join us again if you'd like to learn more about our ministry in Montrose or want to connect with Pastor Matt. Come worship with us at 930 every Sunday along Lake Avenue 